And uh, the people came at, in the early morning and listened to the reading until midday, it says. And the suggestion here is to me that they were all standing <laughs> as Ezra was reading. And the statement is, and they read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. Thank you. You may be seated. We're certainly happy to have each one with us tonight, and Ed has welcomed you well, and I too would like to express my appreciation for your being with us tonight. Brother Sam Wilcutt is speaking to us. Brother Sam has been invited uh, to be one of our guest panelists on the forum this year, and we're very happy that he's able to do that. And are grateful for uh, the good congregation there at Carriage Oaks that has let him come our way and let us borrow him. And I hope that you'll get to know Sam, introduce yourself to him. They're having a gospel meeting October the 1st through the 4th, and uh, Brother B.J. Clark is going to be doing the preaching in their gospel meeting in Bossier City, Louisiana. We have the opportunity. We certainly want to support them in this as best we possibly can. Sam, we're delighted to have you tonight, not only tonight, but also for our forum. We're a congregation that loves God, and we love, God, we love God's Word. And so I ask you tonight, teach us the Word of God. I want to express my appreciation to the elders, for the Jim Laws, to all who have made it possible for me to be with you this evening, as well as for the next three nights. I am both humbled, and I am honored to be able to be with you uh, this evening and this week. I appreciate Brother Jim Laws more than he probably realizes and more than you know. Brother Laws and I first met when he was preaching for the Getwell congregation in Memphis, and I had just recently moved to uh, preach and work for the congregation just outside of Memphis called Munford, Tennessee. And he wasn't there very long before he moved, but he did hold a meeting for us the very first year that I was there at Munford. Got to know him um, fairly well and just really appreciated not only his scholarship, but also his desire to please God and to do things in the right way. And I've been able to follow him from afar for quite a while until the time that uh, I ended up moving here to Texas several years ago, and he, of course, is here in Tyler, and uh, we've been able to cross paths since then, and now my time in Bossier City has been able to bring me close enough to be able to attend some of the preachers' meetings that uh, Brother Laws hosts here at Broadway, and so it's just been a joy to be in this area, and it's a joy to be able to be with you, to be with him, to be with Nat again and others. Thank you so very much for the opportunity to be able to speak to you. I'm excited about the question form tomorrow night. You know, the Bible says a lot about questions and answers. In fact, Jesus amazes me at how he was able to utilize questions in his teaching. I've take, for example, the very end of Matthew chapter 21. It would be about Tuesday of the Passion Week, and you may recall where he was questioned when he was in the temple. Who gave you the authority 
to do the things that you're doing. And he, if you recall, answered their question with a question. Magnificent. He said, I will answer your question if you answer mine. The baptism of John, whence was it? From heaven or from men? And as I have looked deeply and studied at that, I am just amazed at the intricate detail that Jesus gave in the response of that question. Normally, we think about uh, answering a question with a question as a means of dodging the question. And on the surface, one may think that that's what Jesus is doing based upon Jesus' response to their response. They came back after deliberating and they said, we're not going to answer the question. And you'll recall he says, well, if you don't answer my question, then I'm not going to answer your question. He's not dodging their question. That's not how he utilized his question. What he did with his question was bring to light the heart of those who asked the question. When you look at the question he asked, the baptism of John, whence was it, from heaven or from men? And you recall they were deliberating among themselves, and they said, well, if we say of men, then all of a sudden that puts us at odds with the people, because all the people revered John to be a great prophet, and that he was. But we can't say it's from heaven Because then we've self-condemned ourselves. He's going to immediately point back and say, Well then, why weren't you baptized with John's baptism? And certainly, that is the case. Luke chapter 7 lets us know that they were not baptized by John's baptism. It seems as if they were not baptized with John's baptism because, Luke 18, they did not feel like they had any sins necessary. Their self-righteousness had flaunted themselves, so they had no need to be baptized by John's baptism. But they they stood self-incriminating themselves. And that's why when their heart was revealed with a lack of sincerity and a lack of honesty, and they would not answer his question, then Jesus revealed that. But note, the correct answer to his question. The baptism of John, whence was it? From heaven or from men? Answer, from heaven. Is the very answer to their question. Who gave you this authority to be doing what you're doing here in the temple? Answer, heaven gave me this authority. God gave me this authority. In other words, if they had only answered Jesus' question, they would have received the answer to their own question. That amazes me how Jesus was able to answer their question with a question in a masterful way. It reminds me as well how Jesus would often utilize questions even in his own teaching where someone would come and 
pose a question. Master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he would turn right around. And he would ask them a question. Well, what does the law say? How do you read it? Or how do you interpret it? And he would often use these questions as a means of teaching. And it's a beautiful pattern for those of us who are Christians in our own efforts of evangelism to be able to know how to use questions effectively. Back some years ago, my wife Melissa and I decided we were going to engage a couple Mormon elders in a Bible study. They had come by and offered to give a free copy of the Book of Mormon, and we gladly welcomed them in and set up a time whereby we would study with them. And it was about this time that we collectively, along with another couple in the congregation where we were at the time, this was in uh, Adamsville, Alabama, we decided that we wanted to try to find the most effective way of reaching the hearts of these Mormon elders. And one of the ways we felt best in doing so is we set up a few ground rules for ourselves. Uh, Number one, we would not say anything disparagingly of Joseph Smith. It's not that he necessarily didn't deserve it. We did not want to necessarily call into his character simply for the fact that even though he did deserve it, any means of speaking disparagingly against Joseph Smith, they would immediately end the Bible study, and that would end our opportunity. They did not want to hear that, and they normally don't. They take great offense to that. So we didn't want to do that. We wanted to try to keep the study going for the effectiveness And then one of the things that we did is we said we want to teach them by asking questions. And so we would listen to their teaching us, but we would be well prepared ahead of time. We would have done our homework and our groundwork. We did this every week. And we were ready to respond with questions we would turn right around and ask. And we would cause them to be able to see by the questions that we asked the fallacy in their own beliefs. And our whole goal was to just plant some seeds of doubt in the minds of these young men that might bear fruit down the road to be able to cause them to see the error of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I would like to think that we were effective. We had three compelling studies culminating, excuse me, even with the ward leader coming in the final study before it was stopped. It's amazing what we may do with questions. I would like for us this evening, for the rest of our time together, to look at ambiguous questions. Ambiguous questions. The word ambiguous is defined by the dictionary as 
susceptible of multiple interpretations. Susceptible to multiple interpretations. We need to be very careful how we respond to ambiguous questions. Now, here's the truth of the matter in understanding this topic. An unambiguous proposition is either true or false. But an ambiguous proposition may be both true and false. Now, that's interesting. When we think about that fact, especially as it tends to affect our own efforts to teach non-Christians the gospel of Jesus Christ, it creates the idea that, number one, we need to be very careful how we communicate with those who are outside of the body of Christ. We have to be sure that we are not speaking ambiguously. But number two, that also ought to create within us an awareness that we ourselves do not misinterpret things that people say so that we take a false interpretation not understanding what is being told to us. You understand quite well. Communication is a two-way street. So not only should we guard ourselves from speaking ambiguously, but also the responsibility needs to be that we do not receive ambiguity as well. Let me give you an example. One of the more popular ones, you're speaking with an acquaintance, a co-worker, someone that you know, but you've never engaged in an in-depth discussion of God's Word before, but they find out that you are a member of the Church of Christ. And they respond and they say, Oh, you're a member of the Church of Christ. Oh, you're the ones who believe you're the only ones going to heaven. So you're telling me now that if I'm not a member of the Church of Christ, I'm going to hell. Careful how you respond. That is an ambiguous statement. It's ambiguous based upon the fact that your understanding of God's Word leads you to understand clearly if one is outside of the body of Christ, then one has put himself in jeopardy of hellfire. And if you respond at that moment without any clarity of concepts, you say, that's absolutely right. If you're not a member of the church of Christ, you're going to hell. You have just communicated ambiguously. You think, I've taught the truth. And you are right. But you're also wrong. Because I almost guarantee the individual who heard you did not understand what you understand. 
And what they heard you, he or she heard you say, was, if I am not a part of the Church of Christ denomination, then I am lost. Because you believe the Church of Christ denomination is better than all the other denominations. And you would say, that's not what I said. And you're right. But without clear understanding, without doing what the Scripture was read for us from Nehemiah 8.8, it's not just enough to read God's Word. There needs to be some explanation. There needs to be a cohesive understanding. And that's what we are to do with the subject of the Lord's church and the kingdom and all of these matters pertaining to one's salvation. Then laying the groundwork, one may be able to understand the answer to that question. That's why we need to be very careful how we speak. I'd like to look at a few ambiguous questions tonight. But before we do... Let me give one final statement of caution. I am in no way affirming that the Bible is ambiguous. That is not the case at all. The Bible is crystal clear in what it teaches. The teachings are not ambiguous. The questions we ask about the teaching may be ambiguous. So let's be sure we all understand that fact. The Bible is clear in its objective truth. But let's note a few ambiguous questions. Question number one. Did Jesus have to die? Did Jesus have to die Now think about that question for a moment. How would you answer that question? Well, you might be thinking to yourself, well, of course, Jesus had to die on Calvary's cross. Well, if that were the case, then I could take Scripture here and prove you wrong. You do recall what Jesus said in John chapter number 10, verses 17 and 18. Therefore my Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. Oh, so Jesus had the ability to choose whether or not He wanted to lay down his life. That was completely within his own sphere and realm of action. Absolutely right. He didn't have to die. If you look at it from the perspective of his choice. Oh, so Jesus didn't have to die. And if you say the answer is no, Jesus didn't have to die. Now you can take the Bible and prove that to be false. Right? You remember what Peter said in Acts chapter 2 and verse 23 where speaking to those on the day of Pentecost about the crucified Jesus, Peter proclaimed this Jesus whom you crucified, Him 
being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken and with wicked hands have crucified and slain. Oh, it's pretty clear there. God made sure that His death would be a fact. In fact, even Jesus Himself said in Luke 22 and verse 22, Truly the Son of Man goeth as it was determined, but woe unto that man by whom he is betrayed. And so there is a sense in which he didn't have to die. There's a sense in which he absolutely had to die. And it depends upon how you view the question and define the terms. As a matter of fact, it seems as if Jesus alludes to both of these in Matthew 26, verses 53 and 54. He says, Do you not know that I can now pray to my Father and that He will deliver twelve legions of angels? In other words, I don't have to die. If I don't want to die, well, I could call my Father and in a moment's notice, I could be delivered of all this. But notice the very next statement. But how then shall the Scriptures be fulfilled? And that thus it must be. I have the power not to die, but I know it must take place. Scripture must be fulfilled. The redemption of humanity is at stake. And so, this is really an ambiguous question. Ambiguous question number two. Could Jesus have sinned? Could Jesus have sinned? Now, we know that he didn't sin. That's not the question. Could he have sinned? Well, I'm sure you're probably aware of the fact that if we were to uh, ask our Calvinist friend this evening, he would uh, tell us something about total hereditary depravity. The fact that we all have been born inheriting Adam's sin. Interestingly enough, however, they, as a means of getting around this false doctrine that they've concocted, they would say Jesus is an exception to that. Uh, Jesus did not have the fleshly nature at His birth that we all have when we're born. Now that that's interesting. It's false, false to the core. Luke chapter 3, Luke went to great pains by inspiration to be able to show us that Jesus was not, by Matthew's account, simply the son of David, the son of Abraham, but his genealogy takes us all the way back even to Adam. Luke's gospel to share his humanity shared his genealogy through his mother. 
his earthly fleshly side. So I really don't know how they get around Jesus being an exception. But they say, as a result, because he did not, they claim, have this sinful fleshly body that you and I have, they maintain Jesus could not have sinned, emphatically. Jesus could not have sinned. Wait a second. I thought Matthew chapter 4, 1 through 11, and Luke chapter 4 lets us know that the Spirit sent Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. That He was actually tempted of the devil. If he could emphatically never have sinned, how would you even be tempted? How would you, if it's incapable of you sinning, how would you even have, therefore, any desires that result in sin and sin that would lead to death? James chapter 1, verse 17. Well, the Hebrews writer says, He was in all points tempted like as we are. But the only difference between him and us is that he, in face of his temptations, never sinned. Whereas you and I, in the past, on occasions, we have sinned. Hebrews 4 Verse 15. So definitely, the answer is yes. If you consider the facet that Jesus had the ability to choose right from wrong, He was susceptible to temptation. But then if you look at it from the other perspective, could Jesus have sinned in view of The salvation of humanity? Could Jesus have sinned in view of fulfilling Scripture? Could Jesus have sinned and brought about salvation for man? Then the answer to that is no. He could not have sinned. Ambiguity. Now think about question number three. Question number three. Is man saved by works? Is man saved by works? Now, that's an ambiguous question. If you say, well, sure, man's saved by works. Well, what did Paul say? In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's not of works of righteousness which we have done, Titus chapter 3 and verse 5. So if you look at it from one facet, is man saved by works? The answer is no. Clearly taught in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, Titus 3, 5. Oh, so the answer must then be no. Well, wait a second. What did James say in James chapter 2 and verse number 24? That a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Oh, what about um, Philippians chapter 2 and verse number 12? 
that we are to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. This is the very connotation in which Peter says in Acts chapter 2, verse 39 to, uh, excuse me, verse 42, save yourselves from this untoward generation. So on the other hand, yes, man is saved by works. It's an ambiguous question. And the way to answer it is to define the terms. It's to understand what connotation the person who is asking the question is utilizing. Only then will we effectively communicate and to be able to be on common ground and to be able to have the right kind of understanding. One more. The question, does baptism save us? It's an ambiguous question. Uh, Certainly on one hand, we understand that it's not baptism that saves us. It's the blood of Jesus that saves us. It's the sacrifice He made on Calvary that saves us. It's the fact that God's grace and mercy and love were poured out. And it's God working on us. Colossians 2 and verse 12. That saves us. I mean, there is a sense in which no, baptism doesn't save us. God saves us. But there is another side to it, right? You know quite well. The religious world is left in great confusion over this as well as many other ambiguous questions even not mentioned tonight. And they're confused. And yet the Scripture is clear from the other side. 1 Peter 3 and verse 21, the like figure whereunto even now baptism doth also now save us. Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We understand that there is another facet, the fact that God through His Word teaches us that He saves us at the point of our baptism. That it is our appropriation of what He has done to save us. That by our obedience, when we are immersed in water, He has made us the promise that He will bathe us in the blood of our slain and resurrected Lord. And that we will have our sins washed away and we will be pure and born again. It it seems as if this has greatly confused so many of our friends and our neighbors who are outside of the body of Christ. They, They can't seem to wrap their mind around the notion that if I believe that baptism saves me, then I am giving myself more credit than I ought And I'm taking away credit from God. And that's not true at all. I don't believe any of us in this room likely believes that. 
you think about the familiar Old Testament shadows taught like Naaman, how the prophet told this leper, if you want to be cleansed of your leprosy, you need to go dip yourself seven times in the Jordan River and then you will be cleansed from this horrible disease. Now you know that first, he didn't want to do that. He didn't want to do it because the Jordan River was quite dirty, especially when compared to his uh, rivers, Abana and Farpar, back in Damascus, from where he called home. But then he was expecting something much more magnificent and exciting. I mean, he wanted the heavens to peel back, and he wanted the, the thunder and rumbling of heaven itself to be able to cleanse him. And when he was told to do something so base and menial, why, he almost didn't do it until he was encouraged by one of his servants. You want to be cleansed? Why don't you try it? And then he did. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. And he comes up out of the water. And he responds. Look at what I've done. Look at how I cleansed myself. Right? No. You know that's not the case. He came up from the water and he gave gratitude and paid homage and glory to God for making it possible. And that's what we strive to convey to our friends, our family, our neighbors, our co-workers, and those who are not Christians, this is exactly the same way we feel about our baptism. It's not because of us. We are simply complying in faith and obedience and trust that God will save us at that point. Here are several examples this evening of some ambiguous questions. And I hope what it will do is cause us to be very sober-minded when it comes to speaking with those who are non-Christians, that we will be sure that we never communicate ambiguously within our ability and power, and that we will never jump to conclusions in view of ambiguous questions that are often asked of us. It may be the case this evening that as you are here, please understand once more, the Word of God is not ambiguous. It is crystal clear. And it's crystal clear with regards to what God wants us to do to become a New Testament Christian. The Bible says we must believe the gospel. It is the gospel that is God's power to save. Romans chapter 1, verse 16. The Bible is so clear that we must, in view of what sin is and a magnification of it in our lives, we must be willing to repent and turn from that sin. Acts 17, verse number 30 that we will be willing to confess with our mouth what we truly believe 
in our hearts that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. Matthew 10, verse 32. That we would be willing to submit to Him in compliance and that we will be immersed in water for the forgiveness of our sins. Acts 2, verse 38. Those who have drifted away from God are clearly and plainly told, you must repent of your sins. You must confess your faults. You must pray to God that He will forgive you of your sins. Acts 8, 22. James 5, 16. 1 John 1, 7 through 10. Maybe it's the case that in this assembly, there is one who understands the Bible is unambiguous when it lets us know how we may be pleasing unto God. If we can help you, won't you come now as together we stand as we sing.